Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk about evolving terror, the development of jihadist operations targeting Western interests in Africa, and we have David Gartenstein Ross back on the show after a bit of time. It's been a while since we've had you back on the show, David. So welcome to the Loopcast again. Thank you, Chelsea. It's it's great to be back. And uh, you know, we were talking about this uh, off air just before we started recording. But congratulations on all the success that the Loopcast has achieved. It's really um, a tremendous resource. Uh, you and Cena have kept it going for uh, for a while and have been able to um, really have a, a number of great conversations with people doing interesting work. And I know that you have um, a really devoted audience out there. So it, I, I'm proud to have been a part of this when it started. And it's great to be back on with you now. Oh, thank you so much. And it's true. You were one of our what I call like the original set of guests because you've been on the Loopcast for a number of years on and off. So we always thank you too, because you're part of making the Loopcast what it is. So thank you. And for our listeners, just in case you don't know of David's fantastic and very impressive background, I will give you a little info. So he is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And the topic we're going to be talking about today is actually a paper from um, FDD, as the acronym goes. And he's also the chief executive officer, excuse me, at Valens Global, which is a consulting firm that focuses on challenges that are poised by violent non-state actors. And he's also a fellow with Google's Jigsaw, which is a really interesting initiative. If you haven't checked that out, definitely go to their website. And he's also an associate fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism, which is at The Hague, and an adjunct professor, sorry, adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown University in their security studies program. So David's got this huge uh, body of work and huge career that he's had. So it's always fantastic to have you on the show, David. So this great co-authored paper, and um, you've got three different authors that were on this with you. Um, Really, really interesting findings. So why don't you tell me what caused all of you to actually write this uh, paper in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for the that um, very uh, glowing introduction. I'm still blushing a little bit. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but uh, it actually came out of a, a project we worked on um, initially for the Canadian government. Um, the um, Canadian Department of National Defense um, has uh, an academic uh, outreach effort, um, and they have particular interest in Africa. It's actually the second uh, year in a row where we've done a study for them uh, looking at Africa because uh, Canada has uh, a lot of various interests, uh, commercial interests, and they keep flirting with whether or not they're going to uh, help uh, send peacekeepers over to the uh, Malian mission, which, of course, is uh, an increasingly perilous mission. Um, so that's what initially prompted our interest. We um, uh, were interested in, in, in continuing to work with our friends in Canada and um, looking at what we thought would have the most value. Uh, we like doing things through a data-based approach. Um, to me, the more data sets we have, um, the more valuable value we're able to wring out of it. Uh, and we've been doing I, – I've been um, – I'm undertaking a larger project, a book project, which is looking at the ways jihadist groups learn. And so looking at the the past decade of attacks in Africa, 
I thought would be interesting. And generally speaking, for me, uh, when I work with data, the way I prefer to do it is more in line with how big, with how data scientists who work with big data use it. Um, I only dabble in big data, but generally speaking, social science and big data are are kind of opposite in terms of their approach to numbers. With social science, you start out with a hypothesis, and then you run a test to see if it validates your hypothesis. Whereas really when you're using big data, sometimes you'll have a hypothesis attached to it or you'll start with hypotheses. But really what you're doing is picking up the data, shaking it around and seeing what comes out when you look for patterns within it. Um, So here we we didn't come in with uh, an extraordinary amount of um, uh, presumptions about what what the data would show. There are a few things that one could know um, in areas where I was a little bit surprised when I looked at the numbers, but one could know, for example, that post-Arab Spring, there's been an explosion in jihadist activity, uh, that it's higher. We found, in fact, that the the rate of terrorism, jihadist terrorism, has basically tripled since the Arab Spring, which was a little bit more of a rise than I had expected. And to some extent, in fairness, somewhat unrelated to the Arab Spring, because uh, Somalia is driving a lot of the numbers and you know, Somalia itself is not, you know, the situation there is not a creation of the revolutions that we saw uh, back in 2011. But anyway, that's a little bit about why we decided to do it and the, the, way, the reason that we approached it uh, using this particular lens. And on that info, on the tripling of attacks, so you had some figures in the report and you said in January from, I'm sorry, excuse me, from January 20, 2007 to December 2011, uh, jihadists conducted 132 successful, thralted, or failed attacks against Western interests in Africa. And then going on this figure tripling, um, there are 358 attacks between January 2012 and October 2017, which, like you said, that's a huge increase um, in the amount of time that we're looking at here. So let's talk about why this is happening. So, uh, as I said, part of it is linked to Somalia, which is a very, which is um, a different story than the rest of Africa. But there's a reason why the numbers break as they do in Somalia, which is um, until, um, you know, 2012, approximately, uh, Shabab was was the dominant military force in southern Somalia. It was essentially uh, governing territory. And so it was fighting like one could describe it either as an insurgency or else as as a de facto regular military. And so most of the attacks they were carrying out were not terrorist attacks. Terrorist attacks are a very specific thing. Not all attacks carried out by a group like Shabaab or even ISIS or um, Al-Qaeda are are terrorist attacks. A lot of them instead uh, fit the mode of insurgent warfare. Um, you know, terrorist attacks are, are geared specifically uh, at civilians for the, the purpose of terrorizing and attaining objectives that way. But when Shabab was no longer the dominant force in southern Somalia, it resorted to uh, using much more in the way of terrorist attacks. So that's one of the reasons for the increase there. Then if we look to North Africa and the Sahel region, that's where you do get into the Arab Spring effect. Uh, in particular, the, the degeneration of Libya, which has been uh, much more of a driver than, than events in Tunisia, although in Egypt we also have seen 
a, a significant increase in terrorism since the revolution there. But Libya has been a major driver. The, gov- the country was never put back together. And one could trace fairly clearly the connection between events in Libya and not just attacks in the country of Libya, which have you know, increased um, significantly against target types that we mentioned, but also the way in which it had a causal impact on northern Mali uh, in driving terrorism in Tunisia, where some of the major attacks that we saw in 2015, like an attack that we saw against tourists in the beach in Seuss and an attack that we saw at the Bardot Museum in Tunis, were devised in the city of Sabratha in Libya. So there's a very uh, direct connection there, which um, it, all, all of which um, provides some of the why. There's one other thing I'd point to on the why end, which is that these groups, jihadist groups, are demonstrating a very clear learning curve. They've been moving towards tactics that are more effective at striking the kind of targets that they're going after, um, especially targets that are fairly heavily fortified, things like hotels, government compounds. Uh, They've moved from uh, simpler attacks, things like a car bomb or a set of attackers with guns, to multi-phased attacks. Um, For example, one thing that we've seen uh, used a lot in Somalia is a car bomb used to soften a target, the perimeter fence, followed by a team of attackers coming in on foot. And lately, um, there have been a number of instances where those attackers on foot are wearing uh, Somali security services uh, uniforms, like the, the Somali army uh, uniforms, even having ID cards. So when they show up, they look like a rescue force. They don't look like attackers. Um, and then you know, after that, they've been able to do some other things that show adaptation. Um, seizing hostages in the hotel and using the hotel's defenses as their defenses. Uh, so the learning curve, and we've seen this across uh, most of the sectors we've looked at, with the exception of uh, hostage-taking and uh, oil, uh, oil and gas, uh, energy, mineral resources. Across the other categories, we've seen a learning curve um, in all of them, which uh, is another reason why we're seeing an increase in attacks and also an increase in the results that they're attaining. And I think that's one of the really interesting parts of this report. And as you said, you were talking about doing a book on this, and it's this idea of groups learning and developing and changing their tactics and and learning from each other. So, I mean, that's going to be a fascinating topic, and I look forward to a book on that because I'm very interested in that topic. But um, going to the target types, you mentioned five different target types, and I was wondering if we could talk about those a bit. Um, I can either list them and you can elaborate on that or you can tell us about the five targets, however you'd like to go about it. Sure. Uh, either way works, I might as well just um, tell about what the targets are and what we found. So uh, as the name of the study suggests, it's focused on uh, attacks against Western interests. And, um, you know, people have asked me why for that, but part of it is just uh, – you have to figure out a frame of some kind. <laughs> and uh, yeah, as a Westerner, something which is of concern for me. Um, and uh, uh, the five target types we've looked at are establishments that are popular among foreigners, you know, restaurants and hotels among them. Uh, secondly, energy and mineral resources, uh, their infrastructure, their facilities. Third is non-African tourists, expatriates, and NGO workers. Fourth is national and international government facilities, such as embassies, and UN humanitarian compound. Uh, and fifth is uh, the 
uh, aviation industry. And uh, within that, we found that, uh, you know, I, I mentioned energy and mineral resources as being a target where we haven't seen a great deal of innovation. That's an area where most of the attacks have been attacks against pipelines, which have a disruptive effect, but usually actually don't even result in the loss of life. Uh, there have been a couple of attacks against you know major gas facilities, one of them being the notorious in Aminas attack in, in Algeria, where uh, right after the French intervention in Mali, you had Mokhtar Belmokhtar's organization go in, um, seize a, a large number of hostages, um, and even try to uh, destroy the in Aminas facility. Uh, but there we saw you know, a spike in attacks back in 2011 that has receded since, and we haven't seen a great deal of innovation in that regard. Um, across the others, we've, we've seen either innovation or change. So for establishments popular among foreigners, um, such as restaurants and hotels, um, there's been uh, that move, which I described, towards more uh, multi-phased attacks. And um, in Somalia in particular, uh, one thing that we've seen in Mogadishu is you know, just a, a relentless pace of attacks where sometimes uh, there even will have been warnings or uh, you know, similar attacks in the area. But still, that car bomb to soften it up, followed by you know, attackers rushing it on foot, it keeps on succeeding in, in taking a lot of lives, sadly. Um, in attacks against tourists, expatriates, and NGO workers, uh, we've seen, and it's very, it was very clear when we actually kind of mapped out the difference between the two periods examined, the 2007 to 2011 versus 2012 onward, one could see a migration of um, these attacks uh, southward, especially um, in kidnappings slash hostage taking. It's something that al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb now uses as a major source of revenue. Um, they even, uh, according to uh, open source reports, um, provide bounties for um, criminal groups who are able to bring them non-American Westerners, non-American because the Americans don't actually pay, host, uh, pay ransoms. Um, for national international government facilities, we've seen very much the same progression that we've seen uh, for hotels and other establishments popular among foreigners, where there's been that move to, to multi-phased attacks. And um, you know, with them, I, I mentioned Somalia, but we've also seen them in other areas. Uh, Al-Qaeda Islamic Maghreb and Mokhtar al-Mokhtar have been carrying out um, hotel attacks in West Africa. And a lot of the attacks on government facilities have come in Libya, where um, Western embassies uh, were targeted. In fact, in Libya, we saw a drop over the past couple of years, not because um, it's gotten less dangerous, but rather because the danger level reached the point where a lot of Western governments just pulled their personnel out of Libya. Right now, for example, uh, the U.S. does not have diplomatic staff in Libya. Their diplomatic staff is next door in Tunisia. Finally, there's the aviation industry. We're like a few of the other categories. Somalia has been a major driver, uh, but we've seen an increase in sophistication, a move from uh, basically projectiles being launched uh, with indirect fire against airports to now more complex uh, you know, attacks against airports, but also um, very serious attacks against aviation. Uh, it's not as um, well-known as it could be, but there was an attack on uh, a Dallo Airlines flight a few years ago in which the suicide bomber uh, managed to get on board the plane with uh, a laptop with a bomb on it. Uh, fortunately, it took off. Uh, you know, the, the, the laptop bomb 
blew off during the takeoff phase. They, they hadn't yet hit altitude, and so they were able to crash land it. The bomber actually blew himself out of the plane, uh, and, but the plane was otherwise able to land with people um, unmolested. But the, the, for, to me, the big significance there, um, as is often the case for aviation, is the fact that they got the bomb on board the plane. Uh, they're very much like another major aviation attack we saw in Africa, um, that being the Metrojet attack out of Sinai that was carried out by ISIS. You had um, seemingly in both cases an insider threat element. And then subsequently, after the Dalo Airlines flight, you've seen other uh, attempts in, in, in Somalia, um, specifically in, in the Beledouin Airport um, a couple of years ago in March of 2016. Uh, you had a, a laptop bomb explode in the airport, and in the same incident, authorities found and defused two more bombs. One of those bombs was hidden in a printer, uh, with a which, for those who follow these things, um, you know automatically you'll understand that 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 is reminiscent of a design that was developed by Ibrahim Al Asiri, who's an Al Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula member and one of the most innovative jihadist bomb makers. Moreover, given the proximity of Somalia to Yemen. Um, both Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Shabab are organizations, you know, and those are the, the Somalia and Yemen-based branches of Al Qaeda. There are organizations that one would expect to uh, share tactics, techniques, and procedures, and that particular aviation incident um, is, is suggestive of sharing between them. Um, this is something that, that in briefings they've given on the study and, and other conversations I've flagged as a concern. Uh, I think that there will definitely be more attempts. Uh, on aviation uh, in the not-too-distant future. And so touching on that point of innovation and learning, this idea and and actually what is taking place is these outside jihadists, say outside of Africa, since we're talking about the region of Africa, they're teaching the jihadist groups and jihadists in Africa new techniques and and innovations. So let's let's discuss that a bit because that's a big factor in where groups are going to go and potential tactics that they'll develop. So let's talk about that. It's very important. Yeah. So one thing I'm, I'm interested in there, like we, we, I think with, with the example I gave, we, we clearly see uh, learning going in one direction from Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula to Shabab. Um, it strikes me that um, they're, they're uh, maybe in, instances in the future where learning goes in the other direction. And that, that may already be happening, by the way. It's just a little bit, it's harder to map in a study like this, especially since it was very much focused on what's happening in Africa and not outside. But, you know, most of the major studies on learning, and especially um, some of the recent scholarship on terrorist learning, uh, bears out that learning is often bidirectional as opposed to simply uh, unidirectional. So, in, in other words... Um, generally speaking, you're not just going to have a jihadist group come in and uh, teach some of their brethren about how to do cool things with, uh, you know, with um, bombs on airplanes and not learn something from it. Um, so w- one thing that strikes me is that uh, given uh, the comparative um, lack of attention that outside states are, are paying to the continent, um, it could end up serving essentially as an innovation laboratory where some of these outside groups concentrate resources um, to try to hone techniques in Africa before exporting them elsewhere. Uh, we have, of course, seen African jihadists show up in a lot of other places, including um, 
including in Syria, uh, you had large Tunisian contingent. Uh, there are more Tunisians who went to join ISIS in Syria than any other nationality. Um, so there's um, here we, what we can see clearly see when looking at Africa is the flow of learning into Africa. If we're to broaden the aperture and look at other regions, I think that uh, one thing what one would see is both the flow of learning out in this regard uh, and also groups that where any assistance they provide is geared towards learning something in the process of providing that assistance to African jihadist groups. And we were talking about the aviation attacks. It was interesting to see you have graphs within the report and they're very good and clear and it shows you the groups that are doing um, some of the different attacks or the different tactics they're using. And I remember reading that Al-Shabaab, of course, was like the number one in the aviation attacks. And then it was Ansar al-Sharia, Libya, and third was ISIS. And then there are smaller groups that are doing things. But as you said, Al-Shabaab is the, of course, main group that we're seeing a lot of these attacks happening or attempted attacks. So I was wondering if we could discuss that a little bit, the different groups in the region and their rank and file, I guess you could say. Uh, sure. Um, within the context of aviation, and I'll, I'll go a little bit broader than aviation, um, but Shabab is um, you know, a Somali-based militant group. It's an offshoot of uh, another group called the Islamic Courts Union. Um, Somalia has been uh, without uh, a government able to control the entirety of the country uh, since the early 1990s, since the collapse of the Siad Barre regime. Uh, now, when we look at aviation attacks, um, to be clear, a lot of the aviation attacks are um, similar to what I, I mentioned before, like indirect fire against airports, where mortars are being shot at airports. So it's, you know, it's an attack on aviation, quite literally, but it's also uh, not an attack on aviation where there's uh, a big risk of a flight being brought down. Now, the two, the two big exceptions were um, the aforementioned Dalo Airlines flight, um, where brought where uh, the bomber got on board the plane and then flew himself out of the plane, and ISIS's attack in uh, the in, in the Sinai uh, Peninsula, and then then one other attack, the Beledouin attack, where uh, there was a printer bomb um, for Ansar al Sharia in Libya, which uh, is a Libya-based jihadist organization, which now seems to uh, be largely defunct and um, kind of used, basically um, having been uh, bled into other groups in Libya. Uh, but that group um, mounted kind of similar uh, attacks on airports without uh, you know, an attempt to, to, to bring down a plane. Um, so within, when you look at the, the African uh, jihadist context, you know, there's, always this, there's always this debate, which is, a, I'd, I'd say, a little bit artificial um, uh, between kind of the, the local versus the transnational. Uh, the reason I, I talk about the, I say it's a little bit artificial is because both can coexist. Um, and, you know, I think to some extent people in, engage in a debate about which one's more important or talking past each other. But if you look at, at the groups organizationally, um, Africa tends to have a lot of groups that are tied to <clears throat> to Al Qaeda, either expressly or um, or having some sort of covert relationship. You know, Al Shabaab joined uh, Al Qaeda formally in 2012, early 2012. But one can see from the letters recovered from Bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad 
that were actually a part of the organization prior to that, and Bin Laden before his death, wouldn't let them announce that they were part of Al-Qaeda. Um, similarly, for Ansar al-Shuri at Tunisia, you know, several years ago, um, I had a debate on the Loopcast, in fact, about whether they were, you know, how close they were to Al-Qaeda. And it's become clear since then that, that in fact, um, they uh, had taken you know, the leader of that group, which, again, like Ansar al-Shuri in Libya, it's now kind of largely defunct. It was the political wing of what uh, Al-Qaeda was trying to do in Tunisia, with the military wing being Katibat Ukba ibn Nafi. And now that um, you know, the organization is outlawed and pursued, um, the old Ansar al-Sharia, um, to the extent that they're still with the organization, has basically, uh, best I can tell, joined Katibat Ukba ibn Nafi. But at any rate, um, one can see that, that there were bayat, uh, there was a, a pledge of bayat from the leader of Ansar al-Sharia, from uh, Abu Yad al-Tanizi, uh, to the head of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, to, to Abdul Malik Drukdel. Um, and uh, then there's al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, which also is you know a major player. Uh, Katibat Ukba ibn Nafi, which I mentioned, uh, now describes themselves as being a battalion of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. But like a lot of places, ISIS has also made uh, inroads. Boko Haram joined ISIS back in 2015, um, ISIS had a strong presence in Libya um, for some time. Uh, it controlled CERT um, and its fighters who, who left CERT um, because not all of them were killed when uh, CERT was taken back from ISIS have dispersed. I think there's still a question about where most of them will end up. Then there's the Malian uh, conflict where uh, you, have a range, you have a number of different jihadist organizations. Some of the most powerful ones are tied to Al-Qaeda. They're are some groups which can, um, you know, be accurately described as independent as part of that conflict, and you also have ISIS groups emerging in Mali as well. Though, um, as as best I can tell, based on open source information, they seem to be a little louder than they are strong. Um, but that, those are the basic, um, you know, conflict areas. So when you break it down by country, you know, the various countries have. Uh, different threat levels with the ones where there's the most open conflict uh, being Somalia, uh, Mali, uh, and Libya. And so just to play the devil's advocate for people that might not know a lot about terrorism or issues in Africa, why are we seeing these groups in Africa and why are they targeting Western interests? Um, the answer there actually, I think, will, will differ substantially from one country to another. Um, you know, when you look at, at driving factors, in, in some cases we don't um, – you know, the answers are, are less um, scientific than we'd want, uh, and one can draw together multiple things. And you know, in Somalia, you had a government that, that collapsed essentially you know, almost 30 years ago, uh, and um, – you know, there is a rise of, of uh, Islamist groups there, um, which uh, in part relates back to um, some uh, you know, sort of the early uh, proselytization from, from Wahhabi organizations. Um, but whenever there's 30 years of anarchy uh, in a country, 30 years of, of a government that can't extend a writ throughout the country, it's going to have an impact in terms of um, militant groups of uh, some stripe coming to the fore. Um, in Tunisia, one of the things people have looked at heavily is youth unemployment, which I, where I think there is um, a, a connection. Uh, there's you know others as well in terms of this, the strategy 
uh, of Dawa that got opened up uh, post-Arab Spring, um, there were um, less powerful but still present uh, militant groups there prior to 2011. Uh, in Libya, you had a governmental collapse, uh, which in turn helped to influence the collapse of the government in northern Mali. You also have an end... Um, you also have a, an issue in northern Mali with um, the with uh, Tuareg groups and um, basically uh, their grievances towards the government. To be very clear, the Tuareg groups by and large are not jihadist groups. You have some Tuareg jihadist groups, but jihadists were able to exploit that situation. Uh, and there's some lessons to be learned there. Um, so the, the point being, and that's, that's really a 10,000-foot look at it, but the point is, from one country to another, you have some very different dynamics. You'll often have a number of different factors that um, basically coalesce together to produce the situation that, that, that they do um, vis-a-vis militancy. And similarly, the attacks on Western targets uh, will have different rationales. In Somalia, um, you know, attacking Western targets is, uh, among other things, a means to getting supporters of the UN-recognized government out of the country so that Shabab can, uh, again, play a dominant role in southern Somalia. Over in Tunisia, I think there's actually a very clear strategy, and I wrote on this in the CTC Sentinel a few years ago, which is that Tunisia, while it's, um, I think, rightly regarded as an Arab Spring success story, um, it's also a very fragile country. Uh, you have a large amount of the Tunisian economy uh, dependent upon tourism. And uh, tourist targets, as a result, are a way where um, a militant group can kill Westerners and also uh, significantly diminish the Tunisian economy. In 2015, when you had a couple of of horrifying attacks against tourism, uh, and I mentioned this before, one at the Bardot Museum and then the Sioux Beach attack, where you had an attacker who, um, you know, the, the, the attacker's name was Saifedean Rezgui. He, he was able to um, go onto the beach disguised as a, torrent, as a tourist. He hid an assault rifle in his umbrella and uh, was able to um, shoot, you know, just go across the beach shooting uh, tourists primarily for about 30 minutes before he was finally stopped by Tunisian police. And after that, we saw a clear economic impact. Um, you know, the tourism sector accounts for about 15% of Tunisia's GDP. Um, it contributes to about 14% of the country's employment. And Tunisia's tourism re- revenue uh, after the Seuss attack fell 35% the following year. So if you look at it strategically from the perspective of jihadist organizations, it's an ability to, they have the ability to carry out attacks. Um, you know, if you attack this this sector, the tourism sector, this weak underbelly, uh, it could have uh, create what I call a vicious cycle, where it in turn, um, you know, the um, attack in turn reduces employment, harms the economy, and then jihadist groups can use that dynamic to recruit. So um, there will be different reasons, and when 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 one looks at the um, strategic purpose, and and the commercial strategic purpose is. You know, one can see it in a lot of places. We, one can see it in the Ivory Coast uh, attack also against tourist targets. But when, when one looks at um, the specifics of the attack and the dynamics of the country, um, you don't have one constant reason, but instead a, a 
differ a bit from one theater to another, one country to another. And something you were talking about earlier, this working of jihadist groups in Africa with criminal <laughs> networks. I was wondering if you could discuss that a bit, because I find this uh, nexus between terrorism and criminal groups or even organized crime very, very interesting. And we're seeing it more and more in lots of cases around the globe, actually. Yeah, that that's correct. And, you know, in our report, we were barely scratching the surface of um, what the nexus looks like. Um, you know, since, we're, since in the report, what we essentially were doing was um, measuring out specific kinds of attacks. We look at it through the lens of one attack category, that being the attack category of tourists, expatriates, and NGO workers. But uh, in some of the, these attacks and kidnappings, but particularly the the kidnappings are the key one here in terms of the nexus. Um, in some of the kidnappings, you have groups like Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb or others um, capture the uh, the tourists or the foreigners in the first place and, and hold them for ransom or else, in some cases, kill them. Um, but in others, um, it seems that uh, criminal gangs end up handing hostages over to jihadists. So... Um, in uh, Niger, uh, in October of 2016, an American aid worker uh, named Jeffrey Woodkey was um, kidnapped from his home, which was in Abalak. Um, and the Nigerian authorities believed that he was kidnapped by a criminal gang, and then the gang in turn handed him over to jihadists. Uh, I mentioned you know, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb before and their increasing financial reliance on um, kidnapping for ransom. Uh, there, there are reports, and I find them you know, credible, that um, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb has offered to pay up to $100,000 um, for captured non-American Westerners, hoping that they'd receive even more money in ransom payments. You know, AKIM has gotten, uh, according to um, the former U.S. Undersecretary of the Treasury, David Cohen, they've gotten tens of millions of dollars through kidnapping for ransom. So, an arrangement like that with criminal organizations, you know, makes sense from both perspectives. On the one hand, uh, a lot of what jihadists do naturally blends into both the black and gray markets. And on the other hand, for criminal organizations, even if they don't necessarily like groups like AKIM, um, it presents them, uh, you know, a money-making scheme that, you know, is you know, as good as a lot of the other things that they engage in. So thinking about all of the different types of attacks and the increase in attacks since, say, 2007 to 2017, when you look at the differences, that, that tripling from the 2007 to 2011 and then between 2012 and 2017, attack, attacks tripled, what does this mean in the greater picture for the region and its security and stability? Well, obviously... Uh it's uh, uh, trending in the wrong direction. Um, I think, uh, you know, generally speaking, um, when you look at, when you're trying to game things out in the longer term, um, one of the areas where people make mistakes is projecting out straight lines because you always have feedbacks of some kind, either positive feedbacks which accelerate dynamics or negative feedbacks which slow them down that come into play. Uh, unfortunately, if, if, if I were projecting things out, um, and again, um, 
you know, I haven't sat down and done this rigorously, at least for the short term, I think that we have, um, you know, kind of a lot of negative dynamics ranging from, uh, you know, a lot of um, governments that are very corrupt have have trouble with governance. Um, You have, you know, the tremendous impact of climate change being felt in Africa, which in turn creates, uh, in particular, water scarcity is most acutely. I think everyone's been paying attention to the situation in South Africa, where one of the major cities faces a zero day where the water will be turned off. Um, you know, and that create you know, when you have a chaotic situation like that, um, that creates a that that creates a dynamic where militant groups can find a way to benefit. <coughs> Um, that's one reason why when uh, the Arab Spring hit, and it's been you know now almost a, almost a decade, you know three years from now it'll have been a decade since the Arab Spring. Uh, so people remember this less and less over the years. But there's this tremendous triumphalism, um, you know, within my field. You know, most analysts were signing off on the idea that um, these revolutions were devastating to jihadist groups. That it uh, undermine their narrative that jihadist groups were standing by the sidelines and watching history fly by. And you know, one reason I never really bought into that was because it would have been the first time, it, basically um, ever, that you've had major instability rack a region and militant groups couldn't figure out a way to find a place uh, based on the chaos. Um, right now, the trend line is towards more chaos. At some point, that trend line... Um, I hope uh, will change. It may be based on technological change changes. It may be based on breakthrough in terms of water policy. Um, it may be b- based on you know a state breaking down, but then kind of rebuilding in a way that makes more sense, where governance is a little bit more local and more manageable. Uh, but right now, you have a lot of negative trend lines in Mali, in Libya, um, in Nigeria, in Somalia uh, that intersect with each other and make uh, jihadism seem like it'll be, in the near term, um, a growing uh, rather than receding problem. And that's a very dim outlook, (laughs) dim and dismal outlook, yes. But on a different note, what would you like our listeners to take away from this report? And we'll definitely post a link to it so people can read it in full if they're very interested in this topic. But... What kind of takeaways would you like people to have from this? Uh, great. And I, I appreciate you doing so. I appreciate you uh, posting the report. And I hope some of your listeners will be uh, interested and will check it out. Um, the, the the main underlying one, I think, um, is, I'll, I'll return to where we began, which is the more I look at, at, at jihadist organizations and look at why we have trouble both understanding and you know, successfully countering them, it comes back to this central question of what are those organizations? How do they learn? How do they get better at what they do? Um, you know, fundamentally, um, some jihadist organizations are incompetent. You know, some of them are not good at what they do. Um, some of them make a lot of errors. But oftentimes, uh, when we look at a group and we see a number of failed attempts, um, those failures... Um, if we if they cause us to write the group off, we sometimes don't actually understand what's happening because sometimes the early failures are actually you know attempts at getting something right where then they're learning 
and they're carefully calibrating lessons learned. To me, understanding terrorist organizations and militant organizations' learning processes is one of the most important things that we can do because it's only by understanding those processes will um, actually uh, be able to effectively counter uh, these scurrilous organizations. And one last thing I want to ask you is you mentioned that you are thinking about or maybe you are already working on a book on how terrorists learn and innovations and, and et cetera. So what's the timeline for that potentially? Well, hopefully um, end of the year um, or early next year, I'll have it completely wrapped up. It's, it's um, I mean, you, you listed all the stuff I'm working on at the outset. Uh, to, and some of those are actually a little bit dated. I'm not, I'm not um, teaching at Georgetown or, or a fellow at Google anymore that we do. I, I still do some projects for Google. Uh, but um, regardless of that, um, I've uh, yeah, and you can appreciate this well, Chelsea. Being a uh, in a PhD program, you were explaining to me off air just how much uh, stuff you have going on. Um, I've found that this has been one of the, the um, projects that is where I've kind of most found uh, periods of, of of it being stalled. I tend to like to just go through projects very quickly, uh, but so hopefully uh, around the end of this year, I'll be wrapped up with the project. I feel like um, you know um, I have a good co-author on it and we're starting to kind of hit our strides um and with the next say two months um i'm planning to get the book proposal into uh, an academic press and uh you know, hopefully we'll have more news on, on, on that front but at the very least we now uh, have a production schedule and are um i think starting to get the project um on track you know books I, I've, I've written i've written a few before um but um, never before has my attention been spread about. It's a challenge. It is. It is. And like you said, you've got so much going on as well that you have to balance writing the book and, and all the extra sending out, you know, like you said, proposals and so forth. So it's, it's definitely a balance, but it sounds like a very exciting project. I look forward to hearing more about that and good luck. And I just want to thank you once again for being on the Loopcast. It's always a pleasure. And it's always a pleasure to join you. Again, congratulations on everything this loop, that, that the Loopcast has uh, accomplished. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you.